With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Quiet, please. You ready for the big show? Exactly 15 seconds with you on the air. Lars. This is the Lars Larson Show. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. Honestly provocative talk with Lars Larson. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. Broadcasting across the Pacific Northwest and covering Oregon, Washington, and Idaho on the Radio Northwest Network. Lars. And now. Then we're going to kick the Biden crime family out of the White House. Here's your host. I almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's Conspiracy Theory Thursday. I'm going to start out a bit differently with an interview, and let me tell you why. First, though, do I have a dog in the fight? Do I have a bias? I have a seven-year-old granddaughter, and I love her dearly. So I can't even imagine this happening to her. But imagine this. Imagine you find out that somebody has illicitly put pictures of your four-year-old granddaughter on social media. Okay, that's bad enough. Then you find out that those pictures have been paired up with music containing sexually explicit lyrics. I don't know what kind of sick freak does things like that, but taking a sexually explicit song, pairing it up with a picture of a little four-year-old girl, and then imagine you find out the pictures were taken at Gresham High School. I've offered them the chance to respond, no phone call back. If they do, I'll be glad to put them on to respond to this. So it happens at the school, and the school doesn't even bother to notify the mother of the child or take serious corrective action at this point. They didn't even bother to tell mom that this had happened. She had to find out by somebody else expressing sympathy about all that. Well, to tell the story, I've invited Cheryl on. I'm not going to use her last name. Cheryl, thank you for taking the time. You are this little girl's grandmother, correct? Yes, I am. What did you find out happened at Gresham High School? I'm going to let you tell it because I want my audience to hear it directly from you. So this happened about 10 days ago. It was this past Monday, um, October 16th. Um, a Gresham High School student, there's a, there's a preschool that the um, high school runs, and it's for teachers or students that happen to have a child. They can all u utilize this um, school. So it goes from infants all the way up to um, when kids enter kindergarten. So the class that my granddaughter's in is a four-year-old class. Now, the students are very well aware of the number one rule is no cell phones are allowed in the classroom for the obvious reasons like we're talking about today. So this student took pictures of my four-year-old granddaughter, posted them to very sexually explicit lyrics, um, and posted it on social media. 
So the administration found out about this um, sometime that afternoon, and nothing was ever said to my daughter-in-law, who is the t a teacher at the school. My son wasn't contacted. And um, so, you know, they go about their day. She goes home that night, no phone call from anyone in the administration that entire evening. So she takes her daughter back to preschool the next day, not knowing any of this has happened. And it isn't until another parent of a, uh, another teacher, who's also a parent of a student in that classroom, expresses her sympathy to my daughter for what happened to my granddaughter, that she's like, well, what the heck is going on here? So she immediately goes to the administration and says, I want to know what's going on. Well, they won't tell her anything. They won't say anything. Well, it's being investigated, but we're not going to tell you anything. Well. Of course, my, my son came, my daughter, my granddaughter was immediately removed from this preschool. And so my daughter-in-law wanted to know, okay, well, there's got to be some consequence. Now the post has been pulled down and she says, now there has to be some consequences for this because this was very explicit sexualization of a four-year-old. In the school, the principal says, well, you know, students have rights. We're investigating, but students have rights. And so we want to make sure, you know, that we're not violating the students' rights. And my daughter-in-law said, well, you know, I, he can't be back in the, well, she didn't know. this. Per, she didn't know if it was a he or she. And um, she, she said, this person can't be exposed to my daughter any longer because of, you know, this that was exposed. And they said, well, it would be that student, the principal told my daughter-in-law, well, that will be that student's. Um, right to remove themselves from the class. We can't remove them. It's their right to have an education. And, and, and she said, well, that's ridiculous. You know, now, let, let me stop you for a moment, Cheryl, and just ask you, yeah. was your granddaughter the only child? Do they know for a fact whether there weren't other children that were treated the Absolutely. same way or exposed on social media? Nope. This was, the, this was the one that was exposed, so nobody knows. Nobody knows if this has happened previously. And, you know, the school year, I, I, I don't know if this class is particularly like goes on semesters or whatever, but obviously if the student was in that classroom, they probably have been exposed to these kids since the beginning of the school year, I would think. And so as far as you know, that class. student is still working in that daycare with the children of other people. He was until now we have been reassured just this past couple of days. We've been reassured that that student was removed, and I think the print. Now, this is secondhand, but I think that what from what I heard from um, my daughter-in-law was that the the student opted to remove themselves from the from the classroom. They opted to remove themselves. So, so my daughter-in-law said, "Well, now I'm I'm worried because you know this has been exposed now, and um, I need to know that I'm protected that my." or my daughter is protected in this preschool. And the response from the principal, this was like on Thursday now, because this is an ongoing day after day. My daughter was just blowing up the whole thing because she's so frustrated with the fact that the school is absolutely imposing no consequences to this to this student. And so finally, yeah, he's been removed. And the principal has the nerve to tell my daughter-in-law, well, you knew the risk of putting your preschooler in a preschool that is also helped out with the students. I mean, to me, that's the most outrageous statement I think I've ever heard. And the, school, just, the school runs the daycare. 
they choose to take on the awesome responsibility for the safety for those kids, don't they? Correct. And, and to me, Lars, this was nothing more than, like, victim blaming. I mean, my daughter was feeling horrible enough about this whole situation, but now you're telling her, well, you knew the risk. She didn't. By the way, Cheryl, I've got to ask you one other quick question, because I want to follow yeah. up on this, but it's going to be in the days ahead. There's a mandatory reporter law that says if you believe a child's been abused, you have to report to the police, and mandatory reporters include teachers and administration. Any indication that Gresham High School has done the right thing under the mandatory reporting law and reported this to police? My family has been trying to get that information, myself included. Has this been reported? And all we keep getting is, we can't discuss it. We can't discuss it. You know. Okay, but, but one thing is, Cheryl, just, just so I can, your daughter-in-law was told, well, if you want to report it to the police, go ahead. Is that what she was told? Yes. She was told, yeah, go ahead. If you want to file a police report, then, then that's your right. Because, of course, they couldn't tell her she couldn't. But, you know, then she, I mean, my family's worried. I, I was just talking to my son this morning. He says, we don't know what safe direction to take here. I mean, we're not even allowed to know who this student even is. If it's a male, if it's a female, are they still going to the school? My daughter-in-law teaches there. My granddaughter is hopefully going to be back in this preschool at some point because that's what they need in order to do their jobs. And, you know, they can't get any information. And they I'll tell you what, Cheryl, I'm going to I'm going to push on Gresham. Gresham High School needs to explain why would you let freakish behavior by a student? The student gets the choice of whether or not to remove themselves and they don't bother to call the police. Explanations are needed from Gresham High School. Back in a moment, you've got the Lars Larson show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson show. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. Donald Trump with a warning to Hamas at the Republican Jewish Coalition Conference. If you spill a drop of American blood, we will spill a gallon of yours. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show.
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails, and glad to have you with me on the Radio Northwest Network. We have proudly served the Pacific Northwest states of Idaho, Washington, and Oregon for the past almost 24 years. We celebrate that anniversary at the end of this year, and we'll be glad to be here for another 24 if I've got anything to say about it. I'm also glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And our Twitter poll, very straightforward and I think very pungent. Should America send $100 million to the Palestinians, even as many of them celebrate terrorism and hold hostages in the Gaza Strip? I don't think it makes any sense, but Joe Biden today announced a deal with Israel that will allow humanitarian assistance and a $100 million in U.S. aid to Palestinians. So Joe Biden is buying both sides of World War III. He's buying the uh, Iran and Hamas side, and he's also funding Israel as well. So we've got both sides. And, of course, I think Joe Biden and Barack Obama, the guy who's really pulling the strings, they know who the uh, who, who's really behind all of this. It's Iran, it's Hamas, it's terrorism, and it turns out your tax dollars are funding it. Now, on that score, it's a pleasure to welcome back to the program Elizabeth Hovde, who's a research analyst and director of the Center for Workers' Rights and Healthcare at Washington Policy, because I want to talk a little bit about inflation today. Elizabeth, welcome back. Hi, thanks for sharing this information with your audience, Lars. I'm glad to do it. So what is, in at least in terms of Washington State, the Evergreen State, where you focus most of your attention, uh, it seems that inflation is doing a real job on people right now. You bet. And some of that is government inflation, and that's what I'm interested in today. Government-controlled inflation as opposed to just ordinary cost of goods and services? Is that what you mean? Right. And many of us see our total, pay, uh, our total pay at each payday, and we don't really digest the fact that government is gobbling our income along with higher grocery bills, higher gas bills, and other inflation. And it's going to get worse. People need to start looking at it, I think, so it is as, as apparent that government uh, is inflating your your cost um, just as they are doing at the gas pump. You know, we see the gas pump a couple times a week, and we're aware that gas taxes in Washington are inflating that price. But our paychecks are going down because of government-caused uh, reasons as well. Workers' compensation is, again, increasing for workers and employers. A tax for walk cares has begun. That's the tax related to long-term care. And I just got an email from the Employment Security Department that said the rate will change again for the state paid leave program later this month. Now, that could be an up or down change. It went up considerably in January, and now it's double the amount it started out in 2019. So with the extra money from workers and the bailout of cash from the legislature, maybe it will go down. I'm crossing my fingers. But the problem is, isn't just that payroll taxes are rising in Washington State, making it a more difficult place to work, but the programs are not the best we could have. And I'm, I'm worried that lawmakers are going to keep adding payroll taxes and making it worse. Well, how is it, how is it even possible? Let's go back to the paid leave program. How do you start a program four years ago? and see the cost of the program, and hence the demand on taxpayers, double in four years. That's an inflation rate of about 25% a year, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, 
paid leave has been an exercise in build it and they will come. When the state makes people pay for a possible need that some people get, expect people to cash in. You know, we've told people that you can take time off to welcome a family member or to care for a family member or to care for yourself. And I think that people are going to take advantage when they see money leaving their paychecks for that perk. It sounds like under those criteria, because you and I have talked about this before, but it sounds like almost anybody could come up with an excuse to take paid time off work, given that broad a, a set of definitions, saying, well, do you need to take care of yourself? Yeah, I need a mental health day. Uh, do you have to take care of a family member who's sick? Well, depending on the size of your family and extended family, uh, you could say, yeah, somebody in the family is sick. I'll take some time off for that. And then if you have a brand new, you know, baby or adopted child and you get to take time off for that, I would expect that some people are going to completely cash in while others won't get much use out of it at all. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm afraid that some low-income workers who are taxed this as well aren't able to take work off, aren't able to jeopardize, you know, being out of the workforce for an, uh, a, a, an amount of time. And while employers have to save those spots for them when they come back, you know, it's just not the reality for a lot of Washingtonians that they can pop in and out of work and expect everything to go along. So, uh, so are well. you saying that, that better compensated workers and probably richer workers, workers with bigger paychecks, will have a greater ability to take advantage of it than people who are working for, uh, for, for regular wages? That's what they're seeing. This, just like uh, walk hairs and long-term care money, you're seeing low-income workers who are helping people with higher incomes and less resource need take this money from the government. You know, low, low-income workers' paychecks are being used for higher-income people. It's ridiculous. It's, it's creating a safety net for people who aren't in need, and that's just backward. And is there any indication that having doubled in cost in four years, that is that as they see more people taking advantage of it, that we're not going to see the cost of it increase again? Or do you think it's leveled I, out? I'm not sure. You know, COVID threw a, threw a monkey in the wrench, right? There were more people with the ability to either be <laughs> the ability, the, <laughs> the, hard, the hard fact of being sick or um, an ability to say they are sick. So I... I don't know that it'll go up, but I'll be waiting for news at the end of the month. I called yesterday and they said, gotta wait till the end of the month. So I don't know what that means, but when they're sending an email out to employers that it's changing again, it worries me, you know, that it's going to go up again. Well, and at the very beginning, Elizabeth, you mentioned gas taxes. Washington State has one of the highest state gas taxes in America. It's not the highest, but I think it's one of the highest. And and then on mm -hmm. top of that, you've got Jay Inslee's carbon tax, which even he doesn't want to admit has increased costs. So between the two of those, it's about a dollar a gallon going to the government, just to the state government. Yeah, gas tax is not helping us. Uh, pay decreases aren't helping us. And the, the, one of the real problems that's bigger than all of this is the state has excess revenue. So we keep getting tax increases that hurt our family budgets, our individual budgets. The state budget is fine, but we're not seeing any broad-based tax relief, like a, a reduction of the sales tax, which would help everyone. Uh, low-income workers especially. 
and they're not doing it. They, they're swimming in cash, and they say we need more of it. That's Elizabeth Hovde, who's a research analyst and director of the Center for Worker Rights and Healthcare at Washington Policy. Back in just a moment, we'll get to your phone calls and emails. I'm not afraid of social media. Check us out on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and all the other social media, and tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Some solid advice from Senator John Kennedy. Look, if you hate cops just because they're cops, the next time you get in trouble, call a crackhead. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Wednesday. Always glad to get to your phone calls and your emails. I'm not a fan of electric cars. I'm not against the technology, period. I just don't think it makes sense practical sense for most people in America to own and use an electric car, uh, replacing their gasoline or diesel-powered car for a whole lot of practical reasons. And I've always said, if they ever get to the point where they've cleaned up the technology, it pencils out well, it's economically competitive with gasoline and diesel cars, then let the marketplace decide. People can say, I'll drive an electric instead of a gas or a diesel. That's perfectly all right. But having the government push this disastrous policy on us is it's going to be a disaster for Americans. As the government has decided, we will force you to drive. If you're going to drive a car at all, by about 2035, you will not be allowed to buy a gasoline or diesel car. It must be an electric. So. When I saw the story at Real Clear Investigations by our friend John Morosky, who's an investigative journalist, I decided we've got to get him on because he's done a deep dive into what's what it's going to cost to build out the infrastructure to support this foolish public policy. John, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me on. Hey, John, you've said in this story that the cost of all of this is about to absolutely explode where most technologies, as they become mature in America, costs go down, availability goes up, you know, and, and things become more available and less costly. That's not going to happen with electric cars and the charging required to support them? Uh, if it's going to happen, it will happen down the road. It's not happening right now because it's still in the very early stages. And so California is our kind of bellwether. We can look to California on basically a lot of progressive policies, whether that's, you know, gender transitions or affirmative action or reparations, and in this case, electric cars. So California has uh, committed uh, at least $14 billion to building out an uh, electric charging infrastructure because they were the first state to ban the sale of new electric cars effective 2035. There's at least half a dozen other states who followed California's lead and more will follow. So you can just look to California to see how this is going to play out. So it's a, the, um, you have to pay people to buy the cars. You have to pay the, uh, uh, a rebate on the car. You have to discount the cars. And you have to pay the charging companies, uh, basically pay them almost 100% of the cost of installing the chargers because they have to install the chargers in advance of people owning the cars or people won't buy the cars. It's a, it's a chicken and egg problem. And so these, they have to put in this infrastructure first to entice people to buy the cars which they'll be required to buy under a mandate uh, in 2035. So $14 billion, at least so far, 
and the U.S. government is also committing billions of dollars. And so it's just a huge, huge investment to do something that uh, basically to start or create a market that doesn't exist yet. Well, and you've also said EVs are booby-trapped, and I like the, the comparison, with a host of inconveniences and trade-offs that don't seem to be working out well. And it sounds like we're learning more about it, you know, where people might have thought, well, we know what an electric car is. It has a battery, you plug it in, you charge it up, and you go where you want to go. But are there things about electric cars that we never realized until they started running them out in, in, in quantity? You know, what, what you're told about electric cars is that they require no maintenance because they don't have oil or they don't have, you know, engines. Uh, the charging is super cheap. It's, a, you know, like it's just a fraction of the cost of buying gasoline because you charge at home or you go to your workplace and your employer gives you that uh, amenity for free. Um, and that may be the case for the small percentage of people who live close, uh, who can commute to work, who have charging at work, who own a home, who own a garage, who can install a charger in their garage. But the uh, inconveniences of electric cars are, are less, you know, are, are not so publicized. And people have heard of these. I mean, one, obviously, is range anxiety. If you get off of that uh, predictable um, a, a route where, you, where the chargers are in place, where the charging companies have installed chargers, uh, where a lot of people are driving, if you're getting off of the main roads, uh, you, you're going to enter into areas where you have less access to chargers. These chargers are not all consolidated on one app, so you have to download multiple apps to access multiple networks. Um, so, and Tesla is beginning to open up its network, uh, and so the process of standardization is beginning to happen. And I suppose at some point it, all these chargers will be on one app and you'll be able to find them or your car will know where they are. But right now, that's not the case. You have to do a lot of preparation and planning. It's not like you just get into a car and you'll see, you know, you'll see a gas station. You, you have to, you know, you have to look, use different apps. Um, and then, you know, people have heard about the explode, exploding uh, lithium-ion batteries, and people are beginning to learn now that these cars are not as, uh, net zero cars. In fact, when you buy them, they are, you know, they are net zero negative. You have to drive them for several years at least to catch up to a, a gasoline engine car in terms of its emissions. It has a much larger carbon footprint because of the mining of the mi minerals. Um, and my neighbor just bought a Tesla. He loves his Tesla. And I asked him just the other day, I said, did you buy it for environmental reasons? He goes, oh, heck no, there's no environment benefit. This thing is the mining it destroys the environment. I just bought it because it's just so neat to drive. So for him, he loves driving it. He has a second car that he can drive if he has to actually get somewhere uh, of any kind of distance. You know, he, ha he has a gasoline car. But he, people like the technology, like they, you know, they, they're early adopters, just like people who used to line up to buy iPhones. There's always a percentage of people who love that. But the government didn't force people to buy iPhones, and the government didn't say you can't buy a rotary phone after 2035, and we'll pay you to buy, we'll, you know, we'll install cell towers, we'll pay you to buy the iPhone. So that wasn't happening. It all happened organically, right? So with, with, with uh, electric vehicles, there's a huge amount of government um, subsidization and, um, let's say, cajoling. Uh, an encouragement, in quotes, to to move along in this path because people aren't moving fast enough. I mean, right now, the EV sales are, you know, under 10% of all car sales, and the Biden administration wants to get to 50%. I think, what is, what is the year? I think 2035, 50%. Yep. And California wants all new cars, 100% of all new car sales to be electric by 2035. Well, and, and the California other thing is, is the chargers yeah. don't always work. But, John, talk about... I, I looked up, AAA has a number where they say the average time it takes to refuel a gasoline or diesel car is seven minutes. So some people take 10, some people take two or three minutes. It's relatively short. 
that there's been the promise that it someday will be able to charge up that electric car in as fast as 30 minutes. But I think some of the best fast chargers are closer to an hour to get a full charge. And if you imagine pulling into a gas station behind three people, you think, well, I'm going to be here at least 15 minutes while they tank up and then while I tank up. But if you pull in behind three people with your electric car, the minimum, even with the fastest chargers, is likely to be hours, isn't it? Yeah, in that kind of scenario, you know, that's what happened to the, um, uh, oh, I wrote about the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, the energy secretary, they, she did this, you know, um, multi-state uh, summer tour, to, uh, tour touting the wonders of electric vehicles. And in Georgia, uh, one of the chargers was broken and somebody in her, you know, in her entourage parked a gasoline car in front of a charger to reserve it. And it infuriated a local resident who called the cops on the energy secretary. So, you know, that's because, so yes, so you will have situations like that where with flaring tempers, especially when it's really hot, like this is in the summer, it's 95 degrees, you're in asphalt, you've got a crying baby in the car, you know, it's, it, it'll be frustrating. Um, in most, there are chargers that do charge in 30 minutes. They're, I forget what their voltage is, like they're like 350, they're very high voltage, they do make them, they're very expensive. And maybe they'll become normal at some point. Um, but most chargers aren't like that. Even most fast chargers are not that fast, you know, are not 30-minute chargers. Um, and uh, and most chargers aren't fast chargers. Most chargers are level 2 chargers, and they, they give you 5 to 60 miles of range per hour, which is roughly 30 miles of range per hour, uh, whereas the super-fast chargers will give you, you know, like, say, 300 miles uh in 45 minutes or something like that. in 45 minutes that john morosky you got to read the whole piece that he wrote for real clear investigations john is an investigative journalist john we appreciate the time back in a moment i'll get to your phone calls and emails glad to have those calls at 866 hey lars naysayers go first you can email talk at larslarson.com and vote in our twitter poll you'll find it at larslarson.com you're listening to the best of the lars larson show me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges, but how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Another strong take from President Biden on AI and the weather. Helping 
web tech, the web, web, the web telescope. My God, what is this? This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show on a First Amendment Friday night. Glad to be with you. Now, if you want to go to a concert or a show, you can go on, uh, say, Ticketmaster, and you can uh, you can order up a ticket. Imagine if simply illegally crossing into America was made just that easy. Yes, that seems to be the dream of the Joe Biden administration, who has already, in just two and a half years, facilitated the illegal entry to America of about seven and a half million illegal aliens who've encountered the border patrol in that time and about one and a half million who are so-called gotaways because the border patrol saw them never even got a chance to talk to them but they know they came into the country now a certain number have been sent back but now now the biden administration wants to have a mass migration app for a smartphone I thought we'd talk to Chris Hayek about that, who's director of litigation at the Immigration Reform Law Institute. How are you doing, Chris? Hi, Lars. So tell me about this. Did I get any of that wrong? They want an app to go on smartphones to make it that much easier for people to come into the country illegally? They have an app. Uh, the, the American people need to know know this. They, the, Our so-called government is aiding and abetting the invasion of America. It, it's a number of regulations establishing these apps and one is for just four countries cuba haiti nicaragua and venezuela and with this app they're bringing they, they want to bring in thirty thousand people a month and uh, give them parole and uh, now hold on and this the, is, now, just so people know chris correct me if i'm wrong humanitarian parole was written into the law as a way to bring individuals in on a case-by-case -case basis where there was that, some that problem like like a woman shows up on the border the border patrol picks her up she's very pregnant she goes into labor you don't just throw somebody like that back across the line and say go home you take her to a hospital you treat her like a human being or somebody has appendicitis you say well we've got to get this guy to a hospital well but he's an illegal alien we can grant him humanitarian parole we'll take him to the hospital get him treated and then we'll send him back. Or if we need somebody to testify in a trial, you could give humanitarian parole to somebody to come in and testify in the murder trial, for example, even though they're not legally allowed in the United States, humanitarian parole allows, or for a funeral, things like that. That's what humanitarian parole was supposed to be, wasn't it? Right. It, it, uh, it, in the 90s, Congress was angry because uh, Bill Clinton was uh, letting in 20,000 uh, Cubans a year. 20,000 a year and paroling them. And they, they regarded this as parole abuse, so they changed the law and said it had to be individualized, given on a case-by-case -case basis for urgent humanitarian reasons or significant public benefit. And that's not what they're doing now. There's no significant public benefit served by letting in any one of these uh, individual aliens. And, and they claim there's some benefit to bringing in thousands of them because it makes uh, the process of the invasion of the United States by illegal aliens more regular. Um, Except that and, one and of the other things, Chris, what, what it also does, I want people to understand the sort of the political dynamics to this. It lets the Biden administration say, no, there weren't illegal aliens who came in. There was regular migration through a legal process. They get to put the uh, the luster or the veneer of some legitimacy <clears throat> on top of what would otherwise just be illegal entry to our country. 
but it's, but it's not. It, it, it's really the facilitation of illegal immigration. It, it, there's nothing legal about the the on mass parole they're giving them because uh, it, it, it's the farthest thing from anything individual. That means they're just letting in I- illegal aliens through a uh, an app, uh, letting them come in by appointment, and then releasing them with bogus parole. So they're still really illegal aliens. And but since they have the bogus parole. The administration also gives them work authorization so they can take Americans' jobs. In fact, if you put together all the illegal programs that DHS has giving people work authorization, that is, programs that were not authorized by Congress, DHS just claims the authority, which doesn't have to make them up itself. If you put all those programs together, that's not even talking about legal aliens um, or people like H-1Bs who have real work authorization. Um it's all the jobs, virtually all the jobs every year that our economy creates, all the new jobs, are taken up every year by these work authorizations for non-citizens. And I guess, Chris, there's a popular conception. I think it's wrong. But they say, oh, yeah, they're doing all the crap jobs nobody in America wants. You know, they're they're picking uh, f- uh, vegetables. They're, they're out doing stoop labor in farm fields, except they're not. They're doing construction jobs. They're they're going they're going to be right, allowed to go into jobs that pay very well and are legitimate jobs that Americans do want, aren't they? Of course. I mean, they can get any job if they have work authorization. You know, when I I, I lived in Maine for a time when there was uh, low illegal immigration there, and uh, every season there was blueberry picking time, and uh, and the, the the local Mainers went and uh, signed up for it and earned some extra money picking blueberries. These aren't jobs Americans don't want. So what do we do about this? We're going to have to wait till the federal courts, you know, in whichever federal court we can find that'll be sensible, till the federal courts shoot this down. Well, that that's what we hope happens in the District of North North Dakota, where we file a brief against this, and it, after that, it goes to the Eighth Circuit and then the Supreme Court. Yeah, th- this will be heard probably by the Supreme Court, and and hopefully it'll be enjoined while it's on appeal, so we can stop this before it really gets started. This is a bad situation. That's Chris Hayek, who's Director of Litigation at the Immigration Reform Law Institute. Chris, thank you very much. We appreciate your insights. You've got the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Quiet, please. Ladies and gentlemen, you ready for the big show? In exactly 15 seconds, we'll be on the air. Lost. 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 L
is the Lars Larson Show. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. Honestly provocative talk with Lars Larson. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. Broadcasting across the Pacific Northwest and covering Oregon, Washington, and Idaho on the Radio Northwest Network. Live and now. Then we're going to kick the Biden crime family out of the White House. Here's your host. I almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Monday. Always glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Uh, send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll. We always put up an interesting question every day. This one has to do with hospitals and terrorist command centers. But I want to ask you about this. If your child wants to go by a different name and a different pronoun at school, should you, the parent, be kept in the dark about that? Terry Schilling joins me now, who's president of the American Principals Project. Terry, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Lars. Love coming on. Thank you, sir. You know, at the beginning of this hour, I actually got a call. We always put naysayers to the head of the line. There was a young lady by the name of Joy who called me up and said, well, she just didn't believe that this was going on in public schools <laughs> in America. And I said, oh. You know, oh, to the contrary, I've heard from teachers, I hear from students, I, I've seen some of the documents that the schools themselves have put out, memos from the superintendent and directives to teachers saying exactly this, that you're going to tell kids about LGBTQ issues, number one. Number two, if a student comes to you, and it depends on the school and it depends on the political environment they're in, which state they're in, but they may well say, a teacher may well say, we'll, we'll keep your secret away from your parents and not tell them. This is going on in a lot of places, isn't it? It's going on all across the country, Lars, and frankly, a lot of it is driven by the federal government. You know, we've talked about this before, but the federal government gives out $6 trillion every single year, and a big portion of that is through our schools. Well, those dollars don't come for free. Those are all, you know, tied to strengths. And those strengths are diversity programs, equity programs, inclusion programs. And that means uh, protecting children from parents, right? So anyone that's out there trying to say that this isn't happening, you're not even listening to the arguments of the other side because they are actively arguing openly uh, that parents are a threat to their children in many such cases and that they should never be told uh, or outed to their parents uh, by the school. That that's, a that's a criminal act, basically, and they're, they're making it a criminal act all across the country. Well, the funny thing about it, Terry, is that, I mean, I've been doing talk radio for over 25 years now, and I, I can tell you there were times where you'd question, why didn't the state bureaucracy take these kids away from these abusive parents? On the other hand, there were a, a number a number of cases where school kids had been taken away for seemingly no reason and come to find out some overzealous bureaucrat had gone overboard the other direction as well. So it does happen, but I, I just wonder... How in the world did we get to the point where people so easily accept the idea that some parents or most parents cannot be trusted making decisions for their kids? Now, I know that there are people who say, well, I remember there was a parent who decided this, you know, to do this or that or the other thing with their kids. Yeah, 
those are the those are this tiny tiny fraction uh, of, of parents who treat their kids their kids badly. The vast majority of parents do a fantastic job, and yet when the schools and to some extent politicians pump out this idea that no no parents can't be trusted, most of them are evil, most of them will contradict a child who wants to change genders or whatever. They, I guess they figure they, they don't even have to prove that they're factually right. People just seem to have a dim, some people have a dim view of parents. I don't. I think most parents are great. No, and, and that is the reality, is there are exceptions to every rule. But the rule is that no one, no one loves, knows, or serves their children better or, or more than the parents. Right. They are trying to convince us of an enormous lie. And that lie is that 26 year old, brand new, out of college educated, uh, childless women and men, uh, who are on the LGBT spectrum wherever, um, that they know and love these kids more than their own parents. They have them for less than a year, Lars. They're in these classrooms. You have a, you have most teachers for less than a year and they want to tell you that they know better. They don't. This is, this only goes one way, by the way. When a parent is teaching their children about Christianity, they, they're against that. But if a, if a parent is trying to give their kids sex changes because they've also been fooled and taken in by this transgender industry, this billion dollar industry, well, they support parental rights there, just not to raise your kid as a Christian. It only goes one side, and that side is destruction of the next generation. And by the way, your, your point about them only having them for a year, but there we're talking about a school year. So we're saying, you have these kids six, maybe seven hours a day, five days of the week, which in every state I've checked recently, that's less than 180 days a year, meaning they have them in class less than one half of all the year days in a year, less than one half of 365, and you only have them for six or seven hours of that, and you're only required under your contract to teach them five hours of that, and you're splitting your attention among 20 or maybe 25 different kids, but you can give them the kind of personalized attention that their mom and dad don't give to two or three kids at home <laughs> tell me how that works less than half the year uh you know and and less than a quarter of the day say it's six hours that's a quarter of every day mom and dad put them to bed mom and dad take care of them when they're sick mom and dad you know help them buy their clothing or advise them on their uh, various issues that kids run into and you the teacher have them split up among a class of 25 for six hours every day less than half the year right Bingo, bingo. But it, it's it, what we're what we're seeing is not it's it's not an assault on parental rights. What we're seeing is actually an assault on everything that we know and hold to be true and near and dear and important. Right. That's that's what the real war is. It's not on parental rights. Parents have all types of rights to transition. Their kids. You know, they, they talk about these kids in abusive homes and they're they're worried about sending them home. Well, they're never worried about the parents who come out both as transgender and get sex changes. And now mom is dad and dad is mom. Frankly, I think you and I would probably agree that that's, that's probably not the best situation. No, not, 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 not only not the household. best, Terry, that's abusive. Can you imagine how you talk about kids being confused? How confused are you when mom becomes dad and dad becomes mom? 
Right. But here's the other thing. What about the parents that are dressing up their little boys as drag queens? Is that an abusive household? No, it's not. Yes. And that is because, well, you know, no, right, right. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a very abusive household. But to them, that's a healthy and intolerant environment that every child should be raised in. Neil, I'm sorry, Lars, they're saying the quiet parts I love. They actually are now starting to say that trans is what's normal, that gender is a, is a, is a man-made construct that is really against our humanity, and that trans and the binary, or sorry, the non-binary uh, spectrum of gender, that's what's normal. That's what's good. This is not an assault on um, on par- parental rights. It's an assault on men and women. It's an assault on the family. It's an assault on humanity. They are trying to reshape humanity in their image. And let me tell you, it's a really terrible and ugly image. And it's not going well. That's Terry Schilling. Terry, thank you. Terry is the president of the American Principles Project. It's a pleasure to be with you. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. AVMA.org. Upcoming American elections promise some provocative politics, but be forewarned. The green agenda may lead to some extreme rhetoric. Die, get pupper! So prepare yourself by listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's easy. 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. I got to tell you something. If I have a dog in the fight on any subject I'm going to talk about, I'm glad to admit it. I want to be completely transparent with you. So am I a Washington State resident? Yes. Uh, do I have to pay Washington taxes? Yes. Do I expect that I'm going to be on the hook for the new capital gains tax that Washington State has pushed through despite the fact that the Constitution of the state appears to say that violates the Constitution and you can't have income taxes like that 
I don't expect to pay it because I have to confess to Max Nelson, who's director of labor policy at the Freedom Foundation. Max, I wish that I had the kind of assets that it's going to take at least initially to qualify for that capital gains tax, but sadly, I do not. But it sounds like you've made the case that there are an awful lot of people in the state of Washington in government who say, why, sure, we can have a capital gains tax. Um, it doesn't violate the Constitution. But almost everybody else in the country who's, you know, who specializes in that subject seems to think it does. Welcome back to the program, by the way, Max. And uh, tell me what, what we should think about this capital gains tax scheme that appears to violate the Constitution. Well, thanks for having me on the program, Lars. You know, you, you teed the, the issue up very nicely here. And, and as you mentioned, at issue uh, in the big picture is whether income taxes are going to spread across Washington state or not. And this has long been a goal of the progressive left in Washington state. The teachers union here, the Washington Education Association, uh, has literally been working on getting an income tax imposed on Washington residents for over 100 years. This is not a, a new item on the left's wish list. Uh, and, of course, it would be layered across the, the other uh, very high taxes that we already pay in Washington State, sales tax, property tax, gas tax, you name it. Uh, this would, would open the door to a, a whole new category of taxation in the form of an income tax. Now, for many, many years, Washington has benefited economically and, and become an attractive destination spot uh, for companies and individuals to come and do business because we don't have an income tax. There's, there's not that many states that, that don't have an income tax of some kind. Uh, now, we're, we're starting to lose that competitive edge uh, and, and potentially uh, barrel toward an even broader income tax with the legislature's passage in 2021 of what they called a capital gains income tax. Uh, and as you mentioned, Lars, at the outset, you know, this tax, as it's structured today, doesn't affect a large number of people. Uh, the tax applies to income earned from the sale of capital assets that exceeds $250,000, certain, certain capital assets. But in principle, it's, it's an income tax. And the uh, progressives in our state legislature intentionally structured it to tee up uh, the opportunity for the state Supreme Court to reverse 100 plus years of precedent and find that income taxes are now magically constitutional in the state of Washington. And uh, unfortunately, uh, that is exactly what the state Supreme Court held uh, in March of this year. Now, we challenged this, uh, this law in court immediately because it is so clearly unconstitutional. Our, our state constitution says you can't tax property. You can't tax a class of property at different rates or at more than 1% absent voter approval. And what's and happening way, here Max, is... Can I interrupt? Property no, includes... Most people think of property as the house they live in. But the property in this case would include things like stocks that you own or other things that you own or the business that you own. Those are all forms of property that would conceivably be taxed by this new capital gains scheme, right? That, that's exactly right. And, and importantly, our state Supreme Court has held that income itself of any kind counts as property. So it's not that we can't have an income tax in Washington. It's that our state constitution says if we're going to have an income tax, it has to be uniformly applied uh, and the rate of taxation can't exceed 1%. So what do we have here? We have a 7% tax that targets 
people and business activity or, you know, income from certain activity that the Democrats in our legislature don't like. And that opens the door in principle for any kind of income tax that they want to impose in the future. I want to go back to something you said at the beginning where you said, well, it doesn't apply to that many people. As I said, I'm nowhere near the tax bracket that would get me in, into that. But wasn't there another tax, I think 1912 or so, when the first income tax came in for American citizens, it didn't apply to very many people either. <laughs> that is exactly right. And, and look, Washingtonians are smart enough to see through this. You know, that's why they've voted down income tax proposals so many different times over the years that the left just gave up on, on trying to create a new tax. And, you know, they tried to, to structure it in a way that it appears it's only going to tax the wealthy or the, or the ultra wealthy. But Washingtonians are smart enough to know that once you have a new kind of tax, a new classification of taxation, it's only going to expand to new types of people. The rates are only going to increase, and that's certainly going to be the case here. So and, we've and made it a way, priority. Isn't it also, Max, isn't it also the case that at this point, the Washington legislature is awash in money? Haven't they overcollected on almost all the taxes they have right now, and the legislature finds itself not in a, well, in sort of a surplus, where they have more money than they, than they need to fill all of the current needs, but they still want more uh, from citizens? Oh, our state budget, Lars, has blown through the roof. It has more than doubled in the last uh, few years just since, since I've been paying attention to these issues. Uh, our existing tax base is producing more than enough revenue to provide the, for the functioning of state government. This is purely taxation for taxation's sake. The government unions and the progressive interest groups on the left always want to increase taxes. That is their, that is their lifeblood. That is what sustains their operations. That's what gives them the political grip that they have over state government government. And so they will always be advocating for new and higher taxes. That's just built into the equation. But in, in this case, no, there, it's very difficult to make a, a straight-faced policy argument to a taxpayer that uh, the state of Washington needs more money. It, it just doesn't. So at this point, the state Supreme Court has said, yeah, you can have this, this income tax, which everybody, even the IRS, agrees an income tax. So now, uh, the Freedom Foundation has said, we're going to take this to the U.S. Supreme Court. How do you appeal it to the U.S. Supreme Court? I mean, how, how do you appeal a state court where the state Supreme Court has said it's okay and it's a state law? How do you take that kind of case to the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, it's a great question, Lars. And so when we filed our initial lawsuit challenging this tax back in 2021, we filed it here in Washington state courts. And, and the primary argument was that it violated the Washington state constitution for the reasons that we previously discussed. Um, but that wasn't the only argument that we raised. We, we also raised uh, U.S. constitutional arguments against the tax. Uh, now, the state courts didn't get to those constitutional arguments because they, you know, they, well, the Supreme Court did kind of, but at the lower courts where they were striking down the tax, uh, they just struck it down on the basis of our state constitution and said, all right, we don't need to deal with the, the federal constitutional questions because we've already struck down the tax. And the state Supreme Court uh, did, did not take the, the federal claim particularly seriously. But, but the point is, because we've raised a U.S. constitutional argument against the tax and played that argument out through our state courts, we can appeal directly to the U.S. Supreme Court the uh, the decision of the state Supreme Court. from Well, let's hope you get a result. That is Max Nelson, Director of Labor Policy at the Freedom Foundation. Max, we appreciate the time. Back in a moment, I'll get to your phone calls and emails. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show.
Larson Show. Team Kissin on Hamas. For years now, many of us have been warning that the barbarians are at the gates. We were wrong. They're inside. There are positives as well. I mean, say what you want about Hamas supporters. At least they know what a woman is. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. I love technology when technology actually makes things better for human beings. And I know people who are just inherently reflexively anti-technology. I'm not that person. I'm also not in favor of every single technology when you find out that some of them can actually be used in a detrimental way toward those of us human beings. And when it comes to artificial intelligence, AI, I have some special concerns about that. So with all that as background and my full disclosure, James Broll joins me now, who's with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. James, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. So we've got AI out there just about everywhere. I mean, it's being used by average folks to rewrite uh, uh, term papers and things like that. It's being used for a lot of different purposes, and it does seem to have some real promise for things like medical diagnosis that would be inherently positive for human beings. But do we need to set a, a, a set of rules or guidelines or guardrails around this technology? And if so, how do we do that? Yeah, I mean, I would say that the the risks associated with AI and the, and there are risks associated with it fall into two broad categories. There are longer term risks, and this is a lot of what you hear about on the internet, and you hear bloggers and um, sci-fi kind of aficionados talking about the end of the world or the end of humanity or out of control AI, and they're speculating about Terminator type scenarios. Those are, those are kind of longer run concerns, which may be real, may not. There's the evidence is kind of still out on that. But in the shorter term, there are real risks posed by AI uh, related to misinformation. An obvious one with on social media, just um, a lot of these generative AI technologies like ChatGPT or DALI, where they're uh, creating new images and video. Um, not all this information is real. Um, those are there are real risks associated with that. There's privacy concerns associated with data that's being collected um, uh, for from users on a minute by minute basis. There are discrimination concerns when uh, AI technology is used by law enforcement or in hiring or in making lending decisions. You know, you, you mentioned healthcare. There's uh, misdiagnosis is possible. So there, there are definitely real risks, and some of them are kind of already uh, out there. Um, and then the, then the question is, what do we do about that? And in, in response to that question, I would say, because the risks are so varied, uh, it really makes sense to evaluate the different I issue areas or areas of concern on a case-by-case -case basis. And that means... Uh, as risks emerge, we think about them carefully and we tailor solutions to specific scenarios rather than having some kind of all-encompassing, broad, you know, new regulatory agency or international regulator. These are some of the proposals that are being made, which are sweeping and require massive changes in governance. And they probably just won't work because they're not tailored to the particular problem at hand. 
I mean, do we want to turn any of that over to international bodies? Because I feel really uncomfortable with having somebody other than our representatives, sad and pathetic as they are some days of the week, uh, making those decisions, saying, well, France and the EU say this is how you have to do it. So, America, you've, you've got to abide by these rules. Should we, should we make this the kind of thing that is decided in the United States? And if we do a good job of it, it's the gold standard for the rest of the world, but not turn it over to some international body. I think what the, so some of these proposals are really a reflection of the fact that it's extremely difficult to regulate AI. And the second you start regulating it, uh, the te because this technology can be developed anywhere and there's kind of a global race to, to be the leader in this area for both economic and national security reasons, it makes sense that you crack down on it in one place, it's going to pop up in another. And right. the proponents of regulation are anticipating that. And their, their only solution is basically global governance, you know, even global surveillance systems oh have been proposed. So they're, they're that reaching. That sounds like Klaus Schwab and the WEF, doesn't it, James? I mean, it's, to be honest, it's not even practical. It's not, it's unlikely that either major political party in the U.S. would, would want to transfer a lot of their own authority over to some international body. And I think it's a political loser. And it's any such entity would likely be very weak. So well, the I, other I don't, thing I I've got, well, two other things I'm Go concerned ahead. about that I want to ask you about, if you don't mind me rushing through this, because I always have to keep my eye on the clock. But mm -hmm. if we put up really tough limits here, you're right, it'll be developed elsewhere. And should we assume that if we put limits on the legitimate development of AI, that the illegitimate actors, you know, the bad guys, the criminals, the terrorists, or whoever, will go on developing their capabilities, which means one of the ways to meet an AI challenge might be with some more AI. But but if we limit our development of in, in, in America, and the bad guys, uh, whether it's North Korea or whether it's uh, international criminal, uh, uh, you know, kind of, of, of uh, groups, that they'll go on developing, theirs will be better than ours, and we'll end up at the, at, as the victims of that. That's exactly right. So, I mean, who would you rather have at the at the leader of this kind of race to, to develop the most advanced technology? We'd rather have Google and Microsoft, these established big names. Maybe you don't like some of these big tech companies for one reason or another, but they're not going to be developing bioweapons in their basement. They're not going to be trying to develop nuclear weapons or, uh, you know, do... Uh, create new viruses or pathogens that they can unleash around the world. And if we start cracking down on the good guys or the big players who have reputations and financial stake on the line, then who knows? It could be other countries first, like China or, um, you know, authoritarian governments in North Korea or even just independent actors, non-state actors like terrorist groups or underground groups. Well, the other the other thing I'm concerned about is it seems like every time we talk about regulating something, the big players can handle regulation just fine. They have whole departments that do nothing but that, and the small players get pushed to the side. And yet, if we want innovation, don't we want the small players to be able to play in the game as well? And if the, if they come up against a big wall of regulations and limitations, uh, then we're not going to get that, are we? Right. So that, that's probably one of the reasons why in the, in the last six months to a year, I mean, as this race has really taken off and we saw ChatGPT come out at the end of last year, the uh, new chatbot that's, um, and there's all the tech companies are coming out with their own version of it. And what's happening? They, they feel the competitive pressure and they immediately go to Washington and start asking to be regulated. And the reason <laughs> they do that is because they know it's going to make it harder for the little guys to compete with them 
make it much harder for open source technologies, which are basically open for anyone to uh, take and adopt and make their own AIs from. And it'll lock in the leaders, uh, the, the leaders of the pack today, the big tech companies. So if you're skeptical of the big tech companies, you should be skeptical of regulating them, especially when they're the main ones calling for regulation. Well, and the other concern I've got is just garden variety criminals. I mean, we already have people who work scams through phone or Internet. I mean, I, you know, text and, and email. What happens when the criminal groups, and I'm sure they've already done this, figure out how to use AI to fool you into whatever it is they're looking for, usually access to your to your money? Uh, because they're going to do that if they haven't already, aren't they? Right. I mean, it's already happening. You know, you're getting spam calls on your phone. I got a phone call not that long ago. It was a it, recorded message asking for, for money, and it was a, in an English voice. And then halfway through the message, it kind of the AI algorithm broke down, and it was like a, a Chinese-speaking voice <laughs> on the other wow. side or with a thick Chinese accent. And, I mean, the technology it, it exists now to fool people. And, and there's already laws on the books against fraud, and obviously there is a role for government to crack down on that, those sorts of bad actors. And they're just going to have to keep up, and that's, that's going to be one of the biggest challenges is just governance challenges. Absolutely right. That's James Brohl, who's with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. James, thanks very much. I appreciate the time. When we get back, I'll get to your phone calls and your emails at 866-ALARM. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at lawrencelarson.com. You're listening to the best. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. Ronald Reagan knew better, do you? All of it began the first time some of you who know better and are old enough to know better let young people think that they have the right to choose the laws they would obey as long as they were doing it in the name of social protest. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. We are in kind of an information war right now, and nobody knows that better than Angela Todd from the group called PDX Real. Hey, Angela, welcome back to the program. Hi, Lars. Happy to be here. I'm glad to have you because uh, we've got literally a life and death situation, not just this moment, but for the last couple of years, we've seen hundreds of people killed in Oregon by overdose deaths from fentanyl and other opioids. We've had hundreds of people uh, killed in Washington State as well, but specific to Oregon, voters passed Measure 110. 
and they were told, you can do this, we won't be sending people off to prison for ordinary drug possession, which we weren't anyway, but they said, we'll get rid of all the hard drug laws and effectively legalize things like heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, LSD, and the rest, and nothing bad will happen. Well, now bad things are happening, but we're finding out that some of the people who are benefiting to a huge degree from the monies from Measure 110 are actually authoring a study or are involved in authoring a study that actually tells Oregonians, yeah, Measure 110, that's not why more people are dying of drug overdoses. Have I overstated that one? No, you haven't. And I'm going to comment on this, but I just want to tell people to get their hands around this, that the Oregon Health Authority alone, through the dollars that came in from cannabis tax, they have distributed $260 million in this state. And, and Portland uh, has been part of that. The highest money that have been distributed is for harm reduction, which a lot of that is Narcan, by the way, and peer support services, not substance use disorder treatment, detox, housing services, or supporting people into giving them an on-ramp back into society helping them with employment or purpose. It's just, it's completely disgusting to me, um, the money that is moving through. And this particular study that we're talking about, um, we've done our best to get this out. You know, the person that was the contributor to the study, Ms. Haven Wheelock, is, was not only a supporter of Measure 110, was in their marketing for the measure, also, works for Outside In and is a recipient at this point so far this year, $1.7 million the organization that she works for has gotten for this harm reduction. And, and by the way, can I throw into that? If Measure 110 were to be revoked or repealed, that money, at least initially, would go away altogether, wouldn't it? It absolutely would. And it's interesting reading the study because the news came out local news, national news, OPB, Time Magazine, COIN, and said, gee, overdoses have not, and deaths have not been impacted by the decriminalization of drugs in Oregon. And it's like, first of all, this study ended one year and a half ago. So it's only until March of 2022. Second of all, nobody is talking about the impact of all of this harm reduction in Narcan that they have everywhere. You know, we have fire and emergency that tell us that PDX Real regularly, at least every few days, they're telling me that they have people that they're, they're bringing back to life four or five times in a shift. You know, we have places like Blackburn that literally every shift there is an OD there. And there's been five murders, by the way, in the blocks surrounding that in the last year. You know, and, and by the way, Angela, what was it? Birth. A week ago yesterday, we had eight people overdose in the same location of downtown Portland and the North Park blocks at the same time. And all eight were revived. Four went to the hospital. Four did not. So in other words, you're saying it may be that they're reducing the number of deaths from overdose, but it doesn't mean overdoses themselves are down. It doesn't at all. And by the way, since you have a large listening base, I just want to say that any of us in the know know that that's where the dealers are giving the wholesale drugs to the people that are on the bicycles and routing out. We all know it. They live in the park blocks. They sell the wholesale. And nobody is doing anything about the dealers down there. I mean, this is just unconscionable. Instead, we're just spending money 
on allowing people outside to basically ruin their own lives and other people's too. And just camp and do it wherever you want. Our children are seeing it. And in the meantime, you know, our government continues to go after hardworking people in the area with more permits, taxes, fines, and we have absolutely we nearly have zero support from our government in any capacity for emergencies and livability. So what's happening right now with the dead bodies piling up in Oregon and Washington is actually being used as a way to push it nationwide and say, you see, they did it in Oregon, they did it in Portugal, didn't cause any bad things to happen, and so we should do it in the rest of America. That's Soros' ultimate agenda. Yeah, and it's hard for people that are more liberal thinking to even hear this whenever they hear Soros. But, you know, it's called the Drug Policy Institute. That is definitely a Soros organization. Forbes has written that up. You can look up, you can look up campaign finance on Orstar. You can see this for yourself. They contributed $2.5 million for Measure 110, and that money has flowed. You can totally see it. It's not a conspiracy. It is the truth. And as you said, this was the market because people here, it was an inexpensive market to sort of put through the campaign and talk people into basically the propaganda. I don't know how else to say it. Angela, I always encourage people to take a look at PDX Real. You've got a real presence on Instagram and on, on X or Twitter, whichever you choose to call it. Thank you very much for the time. Thank you, Lars. Absolutely. Uh, glad to be with you on a Tuesday. It's the Lars Larson Show on the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening Lars to the Larson Show. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com. View the videos and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Is the Lars Larson Show. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. Honestly provocative talk with Lars Larson. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. Broadcasting across the Pacific Northwest and covering Oregon, Washington, and Idaho on the Radio Northwest Network. Lars. No. Then we're going to kick the Biden crime family out of the White House. Here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, October 22nd, 1981, the U.S. national debt hit, uh, well, 
a, tr- a trillion dollars. I know, it sounds like a long time ago, 42 years ago. Fast forward to today, it has increased to $33 trillion. And of course, that doesn't even begin to count all of the unfunded mandates, things like Social Security, Medicare, and other things that we have agreed to pay, and we have absolutely no idea where the money is. The guy who does know where the money is and where it's been going is our friend Grover Norquist, president of Americans for Tax Reform. Grover, welcome back to the program. Good to be with you. Thank you. You made a great comparison in that uh, one of the words I try to avoid using because the liberals use it so much in such a bad way is sustainable. They'll talk about sustainable architecture and sustainable energy and sustainable food. They're all about sustainable, but you've questioned, how about some sustainable spending, spending that we, that doesn't run us into this massive amount of debt? Oh, absolutely. We have a real challenge with spending continuing at the state level as well as the federal level. At Americans for Tax Reform, the group that I uh, organized, we ask people to take the pledge not to raise taxes. That solves a lot of the problem. And uh, most Republican governors and uh, congressmen and senators have taken and kept the pledge. Uh, but spending is the true cost of government. Uh, once the government spends a dollar, they either had to take it from people in taxes or borrow or inflate to get that money. And that money comes out of our pockets one way or the other. But you, you can't do a spending pledge because if you, what would you say? I promise not to spend more than what this year's budget number. Well, with inflation and time, you know, it changes. So, um, and when they do those budgets, you know, one committee spends money and then another committee changes it and then it goes to the House and the Senate and the president. And a politician could tell you, you know, I, I closed much of what was in that bill that I voted for. And they're not lying, right? Other people stuck stuff in, and he wanted one thing in it, and other stuff got added on. So we, we've put together budgets for the 50 states that say, if you didn't, if you grew the budget, state budget, just as rapidly as the incomes of the people who live in the states. So government spending would not grow faster than the paychecks of the people in the state. Yep. And We're sharing this in each state to say, you know what, if you do this each year, you don't become a greater burden on the people of your state. If you do it over 10 years, you can become a very significantly less expensive government for people. This is the difference over time that gave you New York spends twice as much per person as Florida. Okay, they have roughly the same number of people. Florida is a little bit bigger and uh, New York spends 230 billion and uh, they spent $115 billion in Florida, half as much. So what do they do in New York they don't do in Florida? They both got roads, they both have schools, they both have prisons. Uh, New York hires more people, more bureaucrats. They pay them more. They have fewer hours that they work. Uh, they get pensions that you and I will never see. Uh, and they get benefits on top of the pay, um, which also is sort of a hidden expense hidden from taxpayers too often and that's but but that happens over 20 30 40 years that you get a doubling of the cost of government in new york versus florida but if new york started today to just grow as fast as people's wages they could get back in in shape um like you know losing weight or exercising or something you don't do it overnight but you can do it over time and some states have actually um you know, sat down and for the last 10 years, they've kept spending 
from growing faster than the wages of the people in their state, Texas, Oklahoma, North Carolina, Louisiana, one that surprised me, um, Connecticut. Um, wow. So these are uh, ones, and these, these are dealing with the, um, the, the general fund, which is the, the uh, fund that the state controls. Not, you know, if the federal government comes in, throws a bunch of money on top of something, that's really not the state's uh, choice and so on. The federal government decided they were going to do X, Y, or Z. But the, the, the funds that they control, They've actually kept those. Those states have kept that down. Um, and Alaska, Colorado, West Virginia, and Wyoming have kept both, both with federal funds and without federal funds, below the uh, wages of people in the state. So if you keep spending in control, then it becomes a lot easier not only to keep taxes under control, but there are 12 states today that are phasing their income tax down to zero. How? By doing a version of that thing. Well, we're Mississippi is spend. one of them, isn't it? Yes, yes. And I, I've watched what they're doing, they, and, and I think Idaho must be another one of them because they both bragged we've been able to reduce taxes uh, while everybody else in America in government is saying, oh, we have all these crises going on all the time, which means we need more money. No, not necessarily. You need better management. Yes. North Carolina has been reducing taxes just about every year for 11 years. And they bring their spending down and they've been taking the income tax rate down from over about seven and a half down to towards four. And they're on the way to two point four. Well, the other thing is, I think you get better government, uh, Grover, because people say, well, you hate government. No, government's a tool. I don't hate my chainsaw, but it's dangerous if used the wrong way. I think government's the same way. It's a great tool and you need it for certain things. But if you were to say, well, when a state bureaucracy says, we only have this much money because the population only grew or the paychecks only grew this much. Then we have to be very careful about how we spend it. If you've got an unlimited uh, pocketbook and you go with your family to the to, to Costco, you know, just fill up the carts. Doesn't matter. Nobody even looks at the price because we've got the money to pay for it when you get to the cash register. Whereas the person is looking at their paycheck saying, I have one hundred and seventy five dollars to spend on food for the next you know week. And you say, so we're not spending a dime over 175. You become very particular about what you pick and what you buy, right? Absolutely. The old saying that work, I'm sorry, work expands to fill the time available. You know, yeah. If your paper's done in two days, your paper's done in four days. If you give them four days, the work will take four days. Uh, and money will, you know, government budgets will expand to fill the amount of money available, regardless of what the job is. The job just gets more expensive. Grover, well, I wish we could, just to give people a parting thought, one of the numbers, two of the numbers you gave me, total federal spending in one decade rose 69%. So say 7% a year for 10 years. Now, has anybody's paycheck gone up 7% a year for the last 10 years? A few people, but the average person, no way has their paycheck gone up 7% a year for the last 10 years. And at the state level, it's more like 5% per year for the last 10 years. When the government is growing that fast, Grover Norquist from the Americans for Tax Reform. Grover, thanks very much. I appreciate the time. If the government is growing faster than our paychecks are growing, then at some point, either we go bankrupt or the government goes bankrupt or they run us into bankruptcy. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show.
Guys, with me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Elon Musk sums up America's government. And what I see all over the place is people who care about looking good while doing evil. This is The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. Does it really make sense to introduce yet another apex predator into the forests of the Pacific Northwest? I don't think it does. I mean, frankly... I objected when they said, let's let the population of cougar, mountain lions, explode. And it did. Uh, most people will never see one. Uh, so it's not exactly a tourist attraction, but they sure do know how to you know, you know, chow down on the uh, population of big game animals like deer and elk, which is not a good thing for the other apex predator in the woods, and that would be human beings. So we've got cougar out there. That population has exploded. We've got a lot more coyotes out there for, for some, like, don, uh, like fawns, uh, baby deer, if, you, if you're from the city, uh, or calves, yeah, baby bull elk, uh, if you're from the city, uh, that they, they want that to happen, too. And again, it chews into the big game population. And then, of course, you got the crazies who said, let's bring the grizzly bears back to the North uh, Washington State Cascades. And I said, you want another apex predator out there? Uh, not that attacks on humans are all that frequent, but if you happen to be that human, that's a problem. And now, of course, we've got plans to push more wolves into the uh, the r more rural areas of both Oregon and Washington. And I don't think that works out well either. And our friend, Sheriff Bob Songer, who's from Klickitat County, actually put out a letter uh, in which to, this week in which he said, this is an exceedingly bad idea. And so I thought we'd get Sheriff Songer, Songer on the show. Sheriff, welcome back. It's been a while. Thank you, Lars. Um, very popular program you have. Well, I, I try. I try as much as I can. But, but tell me this. What what do you think they're thinking where you say the introduction of wolves into Klickitat County is a bad idea, in my opinion? And then you go into detail and you said wolves are going to be killing our livestock, domestic pets and present a public safety threat to our citizens. What in the world are they thinking, Sheriff? Well, I don't think they care. Uh, the biologists, uh, federal and state biologists, think it's a good idea. It's a crazy idea. Why would we put a pack of wolves, eventually in, end up being a pack of wolves, introduced into our county when we already have problems with cougars? Uh, and I have a program for that as well. Um, but my job as a constitutional sheriff, because I work for the people, 
is to my duty. It's my duty to protect their citizens' constitutional rights and God-given liberties. And I believe this uh, introduction in Woods, and they're in the process of doing it right now, uh, is a violation of federal law as well as uh, state law. And here's the thing, Lars. Uh, if you are a rancher, farmer, uh, whatever, uh, or you have a domestic pet that you think the world of, a dog or whatever, and a cougar, I mean, I strike that, uh, wolf that they've introduced into our county attacks one of these animals or kills them, you're supposed to stand there with your hands in your pocket and do nothing about it. And if you try and you shoot one of these wolves, uh, they're going to throw you in jail. Yeah, you violated the law because they're protected under the Dangerous Species Act, Section 7, and I call that baloney. I call it violating your rights. And I might add, uh, I believe arresting someone for killing a wolf when it is attacking or killing livestock, domestic pets, which is considered personal property of the individual, is a violation of the individual's constitutional rights. And under the United States Constitution, uh, under the Fifth Amendment, states, is an, uh, states an individual will not be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process. Now, Washington State Constitution also says, under Section 3, Personal Rights, no person shall be deprived of liberty, life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Well, there's no due process of law when they outlaw you protecting your property. You have. That's your constitutional rights, for Christ's sakes. And for the government, whether it's federal or state, in my opinion, is violating citizens' rights by um, putting uh, these wolves into our county. I and, agree with you. And, Sheriff, let me ask you something else about this, because I know people are going to say, well, you're not being deprived by the government. You're being deprived by a, a wild animal, except under the law, Sheriff, who owns those those animals, including both game animals and predators like wolves? Who owns those wolves? I believe the answer is government, isn't it? Absolutely. And if they try to use that nonsense as a cover covering their butt, is uh, is a weak argument. Because if they plant the wolf here, they're aiding and abetting that wolf in killing livestock and domestic pets and presenting a threat to the general public. Yeah, they are. And and then you tell the public, as you said, you can be arrested if you kill a wolf that is attacking or killing your livestock, your domestic pets, or presenting a threat to the public. They're literally saying that you, Sheriff Bob Songer, should go out and arrest a man or a woman who's confronted by a wolf who believes their life is in danger. If they shoot the wolf, you're supposed to arrest that citizen and throw him in jail in Clickadat County, aren't you? Uh, well, that's what they want me to do, but I can guarantee you that will not happen under my administration. I am not going to arrest anybody. I uh, just arrest somebody for what appears to be an unconstitutional law and a violation of the citizens' rights. That's my job, is to intervene when government gets over uh, overextended in uh, violating people's rights. And, Sheriff, my personal theory is that they have an agenda that goes way beyond let's be nice to wolves. They want to kill uh, sport hunting. They want to kill the big game population and, and at the same time put both people's livelihoods, in the case of ranchers, and their, their, their off-time activities where they want to go hiking or camping or whatever. They want to put all that at risk with no real benefit to the public at all. 
Exactly. You're spot on, Laura. Uh, Laura. Uh, you know, you're spot on. They don't care. It's their program. You don't abide by it, and you go to jail. That's Unbelievable. Is it, uh, what yeah. is the way for citizens to fight back against this? Because it, it almost seems like these are decisions being made by bureaucrats in both federal wildlife and state wildlife agencies, and we don't have a way to fight back, do we? Well, uh, the only thing I can suggest is that they get a hold of their local state uh, legislators and make it very clear where the public stands on these issues. And if they have to demonstrate at the uh, peacefully, I better use that word peacefully, at the uh, Capitol in Olympia and, uh, and make it clear to our congressmen and so forth that we're not going to tolerate the violation of uh, individuals' rights to protect their personal property. So now, sure, if you're not suggesting maybe some civil disobedience, like somebody figure out how to trap a wolf and drop it off on Jay Inslee's front doorstep? <laughs> well, that's a good question of our governor and uh, the far woke left politicians. Why don't they release the, uh, and start these programs in King County, Woodby Island, and those kind of locations? Uh, because they don't want them there. They want them out in, the, out in the rural counties. And they have no clue what it is to live in a rural county where these be predators become a real problem. Absolutely right. That's Sheriff Bob Songer from Clickitat County. If I get a naysayer on that, I guarantee you I'll get you on the air. But does anybody think that the forests of the Pacific Northwest should have additional apex predators in the form of wolves introduced into the wild? You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Truth be told, Lars has welcomed naysayers for 27 years, but occasionally... Who is this person who speaks to me as though I needed his advice? This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, your kids have likely already heard about the attacks in Israel, whether from their peers or social media. But while in class, should they be getting teachings from a group that is linked to Hamas? On that note, I thought we'd talk to Ryan Walters. He heads up the Oklahoma State School System uh, as the superintendent. He's a former U.S. history teacher, and he's welcome on this show anytime. How are you doing, uh, Ryan? I'm I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. I'd be doing better if care wasn't in any classroom in the country, though. And, I mean, it's unbelievable to see how the left has pushed their way into curriculum, into classrooms across the state, red state, blue state. But to have care linked to a mosque inside classrooms, and, frankly, now they're out attacking me because, heaven forbid, I actually want real history taught in the classroom. I don't want leftism being pushed on our kids. But uh, that's that's the reality where we are today. You know, just so people know, I mean, I've been talking about CARE, I think, as long as they've existed, is the Council on American-Islamic Relations. And in a lot of ways, Ryan, I compare them, they're like the Sinn Féin of the Irish Troubles 
to the Irish Republican Army. The Republican Army, uh, the IRA, would go out and blow up a tavern or kill some innocent people. And then Sinn Féin would come out and run members for the parliament and be the, fr the front people, the spokespeople for that group. CARE effectively ends up being, I think, the front man or the front organization for a bunch of terrorists. Right, and we've seen it throughout history, right? You have the propaganda arm that, that goes out and tries to always muddy the waters and go, oh, well, we're actually attacking women and children. It's justified. It's really their fault. It, it, there's really something more complex going on here. It's more complicated. You know, the, the Israel, America are always the bad guys in this prism that, that CARE creates. And, you know, you just look at all the groups that line up. Here in Oklahoma, we've got the teachers' union lining up with CARE, lining up with Antifa, and you see all the same groups that are causing this um, uh, un unrest of society join up lock arms to overthrow our society, and that's exactly what we see going on here. And the, and the horrible thing about it, too, is they focus on our kids. There's no better example of how confused they've got young people than young people out actually advocating for Hamas and, and, and uh, you know, insulting and belittling the fact that Israel should even exist. Well, even late this afternoon, Ryan, I'm talking to Ryan Walters, who's superintendent of the Oklahoma State school system, uh, a Cornell University professor, as an example of what your kids are being fed, whether it's a private college or a state college, he called the Hamas terrorist attack that has taken more than 1,400 lives, he called it exhilarating and exciting. I mean, most of us called it horrifying. I mean, these are these are sick people, aren't they? Yeah, sick is exactly how I would put it. It's absolutely disgusting. And you see it when you listen to the way the young people are talking um, on these college campuses. You have professors that are filling their heads with this nonsense. And you listen to them, and it's obvious there's no critical thinking going on. It's obvious there's no diverse diversity of opinions going on these college campuses because they just say these meaningless platitudes that Israel is bad, Palestine is good, Hamas is good. You know, you look at these people on these college campuses, they're not professors. They're not looking at, at education of the young people. What they're looking to do is overthrow an America that they hate. They hate America with a passion. You can hear it dripping in every sort of analysis they put out there, and everything is meant to undermine American values, undermine American traditions, and, and tear families apart. And you see it, and we can't uni unite when we're not even telling kids about our principles. Our principles used to unite this country, but instead what they've done is they flipped it on its head, claimed that America has no founding principles, America is based in evil, our allies are evil, we're always on the wrong side of things. You can't bring people together in America with radical leftists pushing that kind of vile, evil um, mentality amongst uh, college-age kids. Well, it's even, uh, I mean, to some extent, Ryan, in my neck of the woods, our main broadcast studios are in Portland, Oregon, Portlandia, about as far left as you get. And the county around Portland, the biggest county, is Multnomah County, and their county commission got into a big fight. They couldn't even come up with a statement, some kind of statement about what had happened in that terrorist attack, because some of the members, and, and remember, these are all to the left of AOC, these members on this county commission. I mean, they're about as far left as anybody can get, and they said, well, we have to say something about how bad this was toward Israel. And other members of the commission said, no, we won't say that. And I've seen so many liberal institutions find themselves unable to say anything good about Israel uh, or anything bad about the Hamas terrorists. And I thought, 
You've seen people murdered, slaughtered, and now we're finding out that the terrorists literally said, let's target our attacks on kibbutzes, you know, communities, um, and we're going to go after children first. We're going to specifically target schools and activity centers where we're likely to find families and children. And you think, that's just unabashed evil. Can you condemn that? This this is lunacy. It is lunacy, and when you look at, you know, your college professor saying things and college president saying things like that, you go, why are we paying for these institutions? They're taking taxpayer dollars. You've got good conservative people uh, with traditional American values that are paying uh, tens of thousands of dollars uh, to these universities to continue them going, and they continue to push this just absolute evil uh, mentality on, onto our kids. And, and you want to look at it and do a couple things. Number one, they should quit getting this funding. We should absolutely start telling them if they're going to continue to spew anti-Americanism, these funders should cut that funding stream off. They should band together and say, listen, we've given this university all this money over the years. We're not doing it anymore. You're undermining the country that we love. And number two, if this isn't just the best example to end tenure today, I don't know what is. These professors shouldn't have tenure. When they go out and spew this kind of nonsense, they should be fired on the spot. They should be run out of those universities. And we've got to take these, these institutions back. Um, but, but there is no reason these people shouldn't be fired on the spot for saying radical things like backing up terrorist attacks on women and children in Israel. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, maybe I go beyond what I think is in your lane, but is the superintendent schools for an entire state like Oklahoma, is there any, is it politic for you to put out a statement and say, this is the point of view of our school system, uh, that we, de we decry the terrorist attacks on innocent people and we understand the need of Israel to defend itself and we demand that the Hamas terrorists stop doing what they're doing and then just say to the teachers in your system, if you disagree with that, if you think Hamas is the good guys, you can't talk to the kids about that till you talk to us. Tell us why you would believe that. And then maybe you sort out some of the teachers you actually want in the classrooms from the ones you want as far away from a classroom as possible. Is that something that's even even possible for a person in your position to do? You know, uh, yes, it is. You know, and that's one of the things we've looked at from, you know, I, I put out a... Uh, a memo to every school district last week. I asked them to hold a minute of silence for Israel. And if they want to pray, I even put out a sample prayer of, listen, we are going to pray for, for Israel and their safety and their right to defend themselves. Yep. This is what Amer Oklahomans stand behind Israel. We want our kids to hear this with clarity. There is moral clarity on this issue. Israel has a right to live and exist and now they absolutely have a right to defend themselves. And it should be crystal clear for our young people to understand there is evil in this world. And we are going to stand with those who are right. We are going to stand with the innocent. Um, and so, uh, you know, yeah, I put that out every school district last week. and said that this is what we need to be doing. Because Did you get any blowback at all from teachers who said, no, we have to talk about the righteous cause of Hamas? I haven't, just from the media. <laughs> right now, it's just been the media <laughs> well, that acts all upset about it. <laughs> Of course, of course, you're going to get that from mainstream reporters because they're all safely in America. Watch uh, while their point of view changes. If we end up getting a terrorist attack in this country, and we've already seen the head of the FBI warn we may be up for that. That's Ryan Walters, the Oklahoma State School Superintendent and former U.S. history teacher. I know that a lot of you want to comment. We'll get to those comments and calls coming up in just a moment. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show.
with I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. Naysayers go to the head of the line at the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Radio Northwest Network, proudly serving the states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho for almost 24 years now. And, of course, you're welcome to join the conversation. we got a naysayer, and I'll, I'll get to him shortly. But I want to talk about some things that are going on here in the Northwest, including, and I suspect that my friend Josh Marquis, the former DA, thinks the same thing I think about the fact that the mayor of Portland, who voted to defund his cops, and then whined and, and moaned enough that he got the governor of the state to supply Oregon State Police to replace and do the job of the cops that Portland decided to let go. And uh, Seattle's got some of the same problem. Josh, welcome back to the program. Thanks, and people should <laughs> outside of Portland should be particularly angry because the Oregon State Police has really suffered enormous uh, staffing losses over the last 10, 15 years. So when you start putting OSP troopers on the street in Portland, um, it's performative because, of course, with Measure 110, they can't even detain somebody who's firing up a, a, you know, a crack pipe, which is probably fentanyl. Yeah, and so as a result, what good is it going to do other than the optics that you're going to have more police officers, in this case state police officers, I guess on bicycles, bicycling around the town, looking busy? What what does it do other than that? Well, there, I mean, you know, there there is a, a positive effect from having uniformed police officers usually. But uh, as we can tell, anybody who's in downtown Portland, we don't I mean, the, the addicts and homeless bums that, that are uh, destroying downtown Portland really don't care. And and they, uh, Portland uh, police, bicycle patrol and foot patrols have, they haven't really deterred them. So you're right, it's just going to be more presence. And most people, of course, aren't going to be able to tell the difference between a state trooper and a, and a police officer. And I suspect it'll be, it's performative. And it's Tina Kotek, um, you know, and the, the current mayor, who's, of course, a lame duck. Yeah, who's a lame duck and appears to be phoning it in at this point. He's not even going to replace his police chief uh, who left uh, or went back to being a captain with a, a permanent police chief. He's just going to let the interim chief sit in there instead, which I think has some limitations to it, too. I want to ask you about something else, though, and that is this idea that the folks behind Measure 110, the folks who've supported the idea of, of keeping drugs de facto legalized in, in, uh, the, in Oregon, um, that they, 
know what's going on. They want that policy to continue. And apparently they've been bending some of the studies to say, well, we've done a study on it and we know that drug overdose deaths are up, but they appear to have nothing to do with the legalization under Measure 110. Is that true? And is there good reason to believe that maybe some of them are effectively getting paid off by getting big government grants to continue Measure 110's disaster? There's no question about it. The, the study you're talking about uh, just appeared in the JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association, which is a very prestigious journal. However, what wasn't disclosed, and this is the same of JAMA, because when uh, these kinds of studies come out, they are always supposed to disclose any possible conflict of interest. And one of the authors uh, was one of the chief petitioners for Measure 110. That was not disclosed that she was involved in it at all. And she's not only a chief petitioner, but as you point out, they, uh, I think, are the second largest recipient of Measure 110 has been handing out tens of millions of dollars to all kinds of uh, groups that say, oh, we'll do this, or we'll do that, none of which has been effective. So effectively, the study was co-authored by someone who was one of the chief petitioners for Measure 110. That was not disclosed. And the mainstream media in Oregon uh, has been largely saying, oh, this is a, a study, which is true, of the Journal of the American Medical Association. But it turns out, I mean, it's completely bogus. But what we also know is that um, the people in favor of it, which is largely a group called the Drug Policy Alliance out of the East Coast, who funded it for millions of dollars um, in, in uh, 2020, are, have paid for, and I think you've talked about this on your show, uh, plane tickets and, and a vacation in Portugal for a whole bunch of legislators. To Who are allegedly there to them. see how well it works out in Portugal, but the laws uh, are different on it's drug addiction. But, different. <laughs> but go back to the, this woman for a second. So you have a woman who's one of the co-authors or one of the chief petitioners for Measure 110 that legalized drugs. She works at Outside right. In, which is a recipient of $1.75 million from Measure 110. So she's got a major league dog in the fight that as long as Measure 110 is there, the money continues to flow to her organization. And then she becomes one of the authors of a study published in JAMA saying, yeah, we looked at Measure 110, we looked at the drug overdose deaths, there doesn't appear to be a connection at all. And, and so Measure 110 is not causing the problem. And she's one of the authors and a financial beneficiary and the co-author of Measure 110, right? Absolutely, and it, it's really ethical on both ends in terms of the front-end disclosure and, I mean, I suppose the, anybody can apply for it, but just if you flip it around, let's assume, I mean, I, I've authored a couple of law review articles and I've talked about whatever it was that I was fired up about in criminal prosecution. But if I did not disclose that I was a prosecutor or that I was the elect, then the elected district attorney, it would theoretically blow the entire credibility of whatever I had to say. John, thanks so much. I appreciate the call. Glad to get your calls on a Monday. 866-HEY-LARS. You're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to the... Show. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? 
Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com.